Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, November 4th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, Election Day is next Tuesday, but some 33 million Americans, including yours truly, have already cast their votes in what is shaping up to be a very consequential midterm. President Biden spoke this week at Union Station in Washington, D.C., saying democracy itself is on the ballot, an opinion also voiced by former President Barack Obama on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, Republicans are feeling bolstered by recent polls, which show their chances improving, including in tight Senate races like New Hampshire, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, which means the jockeying for power has already begun, including more hints that former President Donald Trump is going to get into the race for the presidency in 2024. Joining me to talk about all this are RCP co-founder and President Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and our own senior elections analyst, Sean Trendy. So, Tom, bring us up to date on the RCP averages, and uh, especially on those battle round Senate races that everyone seems to be talking about right now. Should we just go through the list? Is that what we want to do? Sure. Let's start there. <laughs> Let's see what we have as of right now. And of course, this will change because we're getting polls all the time. So but right now we've got the we've got the Georgia race. We've got Walker ahead by less than a half a point. Fetterman's ahead in Pennsylvania by two tenths of one percent. Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire's ahead by less than one percent. Adam Laxalt's ahead in the Republican in Nevada by under just under two points. Mark Kelly, the Democrat, is ahead by 1.3 percentage points in Arizona. Stepping back and looking at the the landscape here, all of the data suggests that Republicans are going to have a good night. And the question is just how good is it going to be? Is it going to be, you know, a red wave, a red tsunami, a red ripple? And that's kind of where people are trying to figure out, and particularly in the Senate, how uh, are some of these races going to work out? I mean, they're going to be, there are going to be some really close Senate races. And as everybody reads the data, you look at the generic congressional ballot, you look at Biden's job approval rating in these states, you look at where the Democratic incumbents are, 47%, 46%. Catherine Quartz's Masto in Nevada is at 45%, at least right now, unless we get some some data that comes in over the weekend that suggests the Democrats are closing strong or rebounding in some way. You know, I personally think it's a... It's going to be a, a a wave scenario, not a not a massive tsunami, but certainly more than a ripple. One of my friends uh, texted me this week and asked if the RCP Senate projections were clickbait. <laughs> what are we projecting right now in terms of a Senate pickup for the Republicans? Uh, Republicans plus four, plus four, right? Is it is that that the high end of of, of uh, it's at the high end? Yeah, there? I think. Um, I mean, look, there's a, a higher end. I mean, there's a like a massive tsunami where you know Patty Murray goes down in Washington. Maybe Michael Bennett goes down in Colorado. You've got but Tom. Our our data doesn't show those races as even being that close. No, there are some polls that show those races are competitive. I mean, Democrats are spending, I think, $9 million in Washington state right now, uh, just shoved a bunch of money into Washington state. So it's, it's, they are concerned about, you know, a red wave coming and, and washing away some of these folks who weren't considered that vulnerable just uh, a, a few weeks ago. I think Arizona and, and uh, Georgia in particular, um, or Arizona, New Hampshire, those races are going to be close. They're like coin flips. So right now we've got it at GOP plus four. If we get some data that suggests that one or both of those incumbents are in a better position, um, then maybe we'll we'll pull that back before we issue our final projections. Um, and we've got it at about 31 seats in the House, I think, right now. Sean, how do you see it? I'm kind of in the same headspace as Tom on this. I, I think uh, it wouldn't knock me out of my chair with shock if the GOP 
only gained one seat or if it even broke even. Um, but it wouldn't knock me out of my chair with shock if they picked up four seats. I mean, we have the Senate races in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, even Nevada are really kind of on a knife's edge. Uh, and they're, they're probably all going to go more or less together because polling errors are correlated. But even Washington State, our average has it at three points. Colorado, our average has it at five points. So you can see a scenario where, I mean, we, we, we've we had some pretty significant polling errors in recent years. So yeah, you could see a scenario where those ended up uh, being races where the GOP does well. In the House, it's really hard to predict because what I, I'm consistently hearing from both Republican and Democratic folks is that What's happening is that the Democrats in the in the truly marginal districts saw this coming months ago and prepared accordingly. They raised a lot of money. They pay, you know, honed their message to their district, and a lot of them are holding in there or hanging in there. Um, but there's this kind of second tier of Democrats who are in Biden plus eight or Biden plus ten districts who just kind of took it for granted they were going to win. And so that's why you're seeing races like New York 25 and Pennsylvania 12, these kind of heavily Biden districts coming onto the board late, and Democrats like Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, New York 17, in real trouble. And that's not terribly uncommon. I mean, Jim Gerlach was in a carry plus 11 district, and he managed to win in both 2006 and 2008 because he was running scared the entire time. So we'll see what happens this cycle. Find out in five days. Carl, I know you were in Pennsylvania uh, recently, so what are the tea leaves telling you? What did you learn out on the campaign trail? The Senate race there between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz is so interesting because each side thinks it's going to win narrowly. Um, And that's what, you know, as the phrase goes at the track, that's what makes horse races. Because the Eagles are undefeated and Pittsburgh Steelers always get good ratings, and because the Philadelphia Phillies are in the World Series, you've got this big, huge sports audience, and you can't watch a ball game there without being inundated with these ads, many of them dishonest, all of them negative. Um, Mehmet Oz, would, one of them shows a woman, young woman, if she was raped, Mehmet Oz wouldn't let her have an abortion, which is pretty much the opposite of what his position is. The anti-Fetterman ads by the Republicans, and they've run these cookie cutter ads all over the country, um, you know, would just do what Pelosi says, you know, that's the house ads. And they don't even say Nancy Pelosi's first name in these ads. It's a cesspool, the, the air over Pennsylvania. And I, I haven't been to these other swing states, but I assume it's the same in all of them. You know, they have this apocalyptic language, like you know, it's the end times if your side doesn't win. You're not seeing a lot of movement. Fetterman certainly didn't help himself in his debate. The question, and we've talked about it previous weeks, kind of twofold there. First of all, how many people even watch the debate? Uh, I guess there's three variables. How many people have watched it? They didn't get they don't get ratings like these ball games. And secondly, how many people had already voted? We were told at the time it was half a million people vote in Pennsylvania. They now the Secretary of State's office now it seems it could be twice as many that seven hundred fifty thousand a million people had already mailed in their ballots by the time the debate took place. And then the third point is, and Sean brought this up last time, all that matters to so many voters is just that DRLR because everything's nationalized. Because if that seat determines whether Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader, some people say, well, I'm willing to I'm willing to have a carpet-bagging doctor who pushed quack therapies on television for years and made millions of dollars. And the other side is, well, I'm willing to have this guy, you know, who, you know, campaigns and shorts and a hoodie and lived with his mother till he was 40 and inherited this money and thinks he's a socialist and now has had a stroke. I don't care about that either. I don't want Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader. So when I came over from there, I got the feeling maybe it was, you know, Fetterman plus two. Uh, I called the 
reporter, Celine Zito, who I think knows Pennsylvania politics as well as anybody, and she thinks it's Oz plus two. I left there not knowing. <laughs> Tom, let's talk about New Hampshire just for a second, because that really has tightened up. Do you think Maggie Hassan is in, is in real trouble there? And is, is Bolduc surprising people with his performance so far? Yeah, she's definitely in trouble. I mean, there's no question that's a that's a competitive race. I mean, we've got right as we sit right now, we just got a poll showing her up four points, but we have four polls in our average and she's up less than a point overall. We have two polls showing Bulldog leading. He had, you know, pretty strong debate performance the other night. Look, Republicans came home. That was a late primary, September, I think, 13th, maybe, fairly divisive. And and so we didn't have a lot of polling in that state up until just recently. But yeah, I mean, this is sort of reverting to the mean. And, you know, Sean is a famous <laughs> advocate of fundamentals, right? Fundamentals. The fundamental is Joe Biden's job approval rating in New Hampshire is like 40%. Maggie Hassan is at 47.8% in our average. Um, and you take into account all of these, uh, all of the various, you know, inflation and gas prices, home heating oil is a huge issue in the Northeast. Um, so yeah, it's, she's absolutely vulnerable. Um, she, that race hasn't gotten as much attention. It didn't get as much attention over, over the summer because of the primary and because of the lack of polling, but she's in the fight of her life for sure. Well, Sean, I want to move on in a minute, but I do want to ask you because you have a piece on the RCP front page today, um, warning us not to make too much of early voting numbers. And I'm just curious about that. I mean, we do have like I said at the beginning, 33 million people have voted so far. You know, Carl mentioned how many people had voted early in Pennsylvania. Is there really nothing you can learn from looking at all those votes that have already been cast? Or is there something you can glean from that? Well, there's something you can glean from that, which is that like 30 million people have already voted. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it tells you. <laughs> right, right. Turnout will be at least 30 million this cycle. Um, look, in some states where you have party registration or they have, you know, really good voter lists, you can figure out what the partisan composition of the early vote is with some, you know, degree of specificity. But you have no idea who's going to vote on Election Day. You know, maybe no one shows up to vote on Election Day and Democrats get a huge landslide. Maybe 60 million people turn out to vote on Election Day, and they're almost all Republicans, and it's a GOP landslide. Now, those are two absurd examples to illustrate the point. The, the truth will be somewhere in the middle. A lot of people vote on Election Day, and they will have some partisan breakdown, but we just don't know what it is. We don't know whether it's going to be enough to overcome the Democrats' uh, you know, vote share and early voting. It's even more complicated because in 2020, you know that was a he because of the pandemic and and steps that states and state supreme courts took to uh, fight the pandemic. It was a very high uh, early voting mail in voting election. Um, not only that, but the president, the Republican president of the United States, told Republicans that the reason that they lost that election is because their mail ballots were stolen. Um, and you know, there's cheating on the democratic side. So there's been a lot, that issue has become polarized and Republicans are convinced that mail-in voting is a, is a scam. So we don't even, we can't even use 2020 or 2018 or 2016 as a baseline of what's normal, um, because the par parties have messaged on early voting in such a way that we probably expect there to be good, strong democratic early voting this cycle. Um, but 
we don't know. We don't know to what extent. There, there's just too many unknowns to do anything useful with it, unless you are John Ralston in Nevada, who has a 10-year track record of predicting that state well. And he can only do that because 80% of the votes are cast early. And what's he saying? He's saying it's bad for Democrats. He said they're in, in real trouble. They're not building the the firewall uh, that they need. But even Ralston is always very careful to say, look, we don't know what the election day vote is. We don't know how independents are voting. And so he, he kind of pitches it as a general vibe, uh, not some of the more specific predictions some people try to do with it. Well, Tom, Sean might have just saved us all a lot of time. We should read his article. It's on the front page, as I said. And we can ignore all these early voting analysis. Uh, do you buy that or, or can you not help yourself? You're going to be reading that stuff anyway. No, no, I, I 100% agree with Sean. I mean, I, I tell people when I give speeches, when I talk about this stuff, I said, ignore the early vote. I mean, you know, anybody, all these folks who are trying to read the tea leaves on early voting, I mean, it's just, it's a fool's errand. I mean, and both sides do it and both sides try and spin it their their way, you know, but it's ultimately, I, I agree with Sean. It's just, it's, it's not worth the time and effort, you know. We can look at other things like, where's the late money being spent, right? Where are the parties diverting their resources here in the final days? That'll tell you more than the early vote. So there are other things to look at that I think are more important. Well, Carl, I want to talk about the Democrats' closing argument here. Um, Wednesday, President Biden traveled to Union Station. And if you don't know, Washington Union Station is all two miles away from the White House, so it didn't go too far. Uh, to give his pitch for voting Democratic, here are a few things uh, that he said. He said, in our bones, we know democracy is at risk. He said, the extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, as I said earlier, but is a driving force, is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020 to suppress the rights of voters and subvert the electoral system itself. And he also said, make no mistake, democracy is on the ballot for us all. So, Carl, you got some heat uh, for going back to these themes, which he had laid out back in the summer in Philadelphia. Uh, but he also got some praise for it. Um, is this an effective uh, strategy uh, in terms of uh, the ballot box? Uh, and I guess more importantly, do you think he's right? Well, I'll answer the first question first. Uh, I have no idea if it's an effective strategy. What it's designed to do is shore up the base, remind Democrats that it, this is Armageddon if they lose, and to sway a certain number of independent voters who feel the same way and, and, and alarm them. What I think of it is that it's an offensive argument. It's a, the Democratic talking point. It is the bookend to the Republicans' equally offensive argument that if we lose races, we didn't really lose them. They were stolen from us. The Democrats have upped the ante. No, they're trying to not steal this election, but every election from you. There won't be free elections if we lose. This is the kind of thing, Andy, that the, the media used to, uh, when the press was less partisan than it is now and really truly independent would throw a yellow flag on and, and kind of ridicule this argument. I mean, you know, uh, instead the media seems to be leading the argument. I, I've heard, I've heard politicians, I've heard the president now say things he heard in the press, CBS morning news. When I was in Pennsylvania, they had their show, their whole show was devoted to, is this the end of democracy? Uh, democracy is on the ballot. You know, it's a Democratic Party talking point. CBS is leading with it. They're half their show. And they said things like all the violence and all the threats come from one side, which is patently untrue. Uh, they said that all the election denying is on one is, is on one side. And I, I submit to you that if you do a segment on election deniers, 
and you not mention Stacey Abrams of Georgia, you are not doing journalism. You are doing propaganda. She has yet to acknowledge that she lost four years ago. She's on the ballot the same day as these candidates that the president is stumping for. And she won't, you know, this idea that if you lose elections, you didn't really lose is a pernicious and odious and dangerous thing. Both parties are playing it. Uh, Trump is playing it spectacularly. And he's got all these acolytes running around the country saying the same thing, you know, that 2020 was stolen. And the Democrats' response to that, they think the antidote to that is to, you know, vote Democratic. We're, we're responsible. We don't engage in that kind of thing. But they do. And they've, they've simply upped the energy, up the rhetoric, up the heat, you know, and, and, and diminished the light with this argument. Uh, how about making your case? You know, I, I, how about making your case why your political party has pu- public policy solutions that will help American families? That, that's what they ought to be doing. They think this is more effective to scare the, scare the crap out of people. Sean, what did you make of it? The argument seems to be that we have a democracy, but if you vote for anyone other than our party, democracy loses. So, you know. We need a one-party state. <laughs> yeah, we need we need a one-party state to, to save democracy, democracy right, right now. The, the problem is that that might be what motivates – and we shouldn't say Democrats, we should say white liberal Democrats to get to the polls. Everyone else cares about inflation, crime, jobs, the economy. Some of those things, like jobs, jobs are good. Biden should have been giving a speech about the spectacular jobs growth that we've had. Uh, he should have been giving a speech about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, it. it he he took whatever inflation reduction there was and spent it on student loan forgiveness, so it doesn't do that anymore. But but that doesn't matter. Like he should be talking about that. Um, you know, instead he's giving this dark MAGA speech that I, I think if for whatever voters are out there that are truly undecided right now, the reaction is what on earth? They trot out that historian Michael Beschloss, or I don't know how you pronounce that's his, his name. name yep. but, a previously well-respected historian, you know, who is claiming that if the Republicans win, they're going to come take my children and kill them. It's like, what? You know, and I don't, I don't think I'm paraphrasing that much. I think that's what he said. That is what he said. Um, it's crazy. So anyway, that's my reaction to that line of argument. Tom, I'm going to get your reaction in a second, but I do want to read, this takes a little time, but this is what Tom Nichols said in The Atlantic. Just to give the other side here, he said, President's appeal to defend our democratic values will exasperate supposed pragmatists who believe that all people want to hear about is the price of cereal and bananas. Maybe the pragmatists are right and voters don't care about anything else, but a president betrays his oath to defend the Constitution if he allows his concerns about our democracy to be held hostage to the price of a gallon of gasoline. Presidents, unlike the occupants of lesser offices, must speak to the American people like they are adults capable of thinking about many things at one time, including foreign policy, crime, inflation, and the state of our democracy. Tom, look, if the president really sees the world this way, and he did make this mention that there are three, uh, what, 300 election deniers on the ballot, isn't there an argument that what he's doing is thinking beyond the midterms, laying this groundwork for a longer game that includes defending democratic institutions against what he perceives as an existential threat? I mean, I guess that's what Tom Nichols believes. <laughs> it's very disingenuous and dishonest, I think, the argument. And you had you had Democrats meddling in these primaries trying to trying to get these people to be their opponents. 
if they were really true threats to democracy, they wouldn't have done that. So that's true. They they pumped like three million dollars into the Bolda campaign. Yeah, exactly. So so it's it's just. But I agree with Sean. I mean, look, and Carl, by the way. I mean, I to me, this signals Democrats have given up on you know trying to reach the middle. They're they've given up on independence, and they're they're because this has been clear in the data for for months. I mean, months, right? This is not some. Shocker that independent voters care about the economy and crime and education and immigration and and do they care about election laws and things? Sure, but not nearly as much. I mean, you look at the I think the last Quinnipiac poll had it was like thirty seven percent of independents say inflation was the number one issue and there wasn't a single other issue in double digits, right? So it's it's an order of magnitude. So and this is again been clear. So I think Democrats have just decided, look, you know. Inflation. I mean, we can't talk about the economy. We just have to take our lumps, and we're gonna, you know, double down on trying to just get the base ginned up and and turned out on abortion and on and just scare the bejesus out of them that this is the end of times if Republicans. Because that, to Sean's point, that message, the message that Biden gave the other day, that's not resonating. That's not reaching independence in any meaningful way at all. To me, it signals they've and they know that. I mean, they're not stupid people. Who are who are you know writing these speeches and and strategizing? Um, but I feel like they they've just that's their last option. I mean they're back in a corner and and they're gonna it's their best option for for minimizing their losses. Can I add something there? I, I want to you know Tom Nichols is a serious person. He he, he cares about the country. Let's be careful about that, Carl. Let's uh... let's let's let's, <laughs> let's 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 stipulate that for the purpose of this argument. That's a relative that these, term. That that these Democrat that some of these Democrats saying this, it's not just a talking point that they think will help them. Some of them believe it. Let's just stipulate to that. And uh, and I, I I I share the concern. I don't think what Donald. I think what Donald Trump did it in the in the transition period after his presidency was the single least responsible performance by a president since certainly since James Buchanan was in office. That's, that's my view. I don't often quote a Friedrich Nietzsche, but I will this morning. You don't meet that kind of behavior by duplicating it. I, I don't think it's responsible to that or exceeding it. Nietzsche put it this way. He who fights against monsters should see to it that he does not become a monster in the process. And I think some of these arguments are monstrous to say that it, it's only one side that if you vote for a Republican, you're voting to end, um, American democracy. That's not that's not a that's not a healthy argument to even be making. And to trivialize it by saying, oh, people who are concerned about, you know, the price of bananas and cereal, I, that, that's, that's such an elitist argument. Joe Biden went to the Union Station. Uh, that place used to be, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in Washington. For many years in the 80s, it was just a shell in the 70s. It, it was like a lot of these urban places rat infested. The building had been taken over. It's still a, a, a station where the trains come in, but that's all it was for. Uh, the Department of Transportation, I think Elizabeth Dole was Secretary of Transportation at the time, announced this. They spent you know, hundreds of millions of dollars making this a beautiful shops, restaurants, and brought back civic life. Well, it's on its way back to what it was before. The crime uh, the drug, the drug use, the homeless encampments. There've been, there've been crimes there, murders. The people, the Starbucks closed their shop because it was too dangerous for people. You know, the Democrats have social problems that uh, it, cities that they run have have become much worse. And what it seems to me in a healthy democracy, the word that they use so much, they ought to be explaining why they're pursuing these policies that have failed and how they're going to change them and what they're going to do to make the American civic life in these urban cores 
healthier and safer. Sean? You are being way too kind to Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrific and offensive argument that the president of the United States should look at Americans' concerns and basically say, screw you. This is what I think you should care about. This is what I'm going to talk about. It's a, it's a repulsive argument. Uh, and you will reap what you sow. So as a result of that, if you actually believe we are a democracy and you're going to make all these high and mighty arguments about democracy, which I actually believe at a very deep level, unlike some of these charlatans and fools, um, it's your job to go out and talk to the voters about the things that they care about, not to tell the voters that they're wrong or stupid or try to gaslight them and tell them, yeah, you know, you used to pay seven bucks for a pound of bacon and now it's 12, but it's really about Putin's war in Ukraine. That's, that's why you're paying more. Or yeah, crime is up 30% in your location, but you're making stuff up because look at how much worse it was in the nineties, 30 years ago. <laughs> It's just offensive, and the people making these arguments should uh, should be ashamed. And, and it's not that you can't talk about democracy. It's the it's the suggestion that the voters are wrong. A few people know what's best for them, and that's what the president should be doing. That's anti democratic, and it's it's offensive. Well, Tom, do you say well, what? <laughs> I think Sean said it all, right? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. I mean, this is this has been the Democrats' problem the entire time. And, and Democrat, there's been, I think I've said this before, you know, Bernie Sanders has written about this. We can't ignore the economy. We can't ignore it and expect not to pay a political price for that. Um, so there have been Democrats who have been counseling the administration and, and the leaders of the party to – address the concerns of the majority of voters. And it's, it's a, it's a super majority of Republican voters. It's a majority of, of, uh, independent voters, but Democrats have, they have been more excited by and, and obsessed by the issue of abortion and the issue of, you know, January 6th and election, you know, laws and, and, and the like. And so they've, They've come off as as sort of out of touch. You get to a point of no return where it's like, okay, well, what good is it going to be, you know, to talk about it now if we haven't talked about it for six months while inflation was raging and all that? Um, so, look, we'll see. To Sean's point, I mean, you know, we, we'll see who turns out on election day and and what they have to say. But the the early signs are that you know when you have 85 percent of independents who say that inflation, economy, whatever is their number one issue, and they're breaking for Republicans. Or, or seem to be breaking for Republicans, um, that that doesn't bode well for Democrats in some of these close races. I got one more little thing on this. I know we want to move on, but it's <laughs> it's it's the election. It's it's the podcast before the election, so True. I think we have to go a little we, long. We have to we go. Can, a we can long. go. We can go all day. It's not even that this is what Democrats care about. And I think that's the other key thing that gives some insight into the larger things with the Democratic Party. It, it, it's this is what what white progressive Democrats care about. I don't think if you go into, uh, you know, the black community and say, hey, what, what are your thoughts, you know, about, you know, 
democracy in the future, you'll, you'll get some concern. But I would imagine the concerns are more about kitchen table issues like the rest of Americans. And and Democrats are having some problems with minority turnout this election and enthusiasm. And I think that's part of it, that this administration has really kind of, and I'm surprised. I was optimistic about Biden because he has this lengthy history in Washington. He's a little older. He's kind of seen it all within the Democratic Party. But it's really kind of been hijacked by 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 white Twitter, um, you know, and, and you see it in this messaging on democracy. You see it on Biden. You know, we talked about it last time, continuing to refer to Latinx or Latinx or whatever it is when, when Hispanic voters hate that term. No one uses it except for white college educated liberals. And yet he just he just rolls on. If there is a course correction, it has to be to turn away from the Twitter base. And tw- I, 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 Bernie Sanders is 150 percent right in his critique of his party's approach to this election. Well, you know, Sean, uh, you had a bagel before we started and you <laughs> said you, instead of an energy drink, I, I wonder what this podcast would be like if Sean had had that energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's move to um, Trump for a second here, because um, the rumor du jour is that former President uh, Trump, is uh, his inner circle at least, is discussing, announcing the launch of a 2024 presidential campaign. Uh, the date we are hearing is November 14th at a Thursday rally in Sioux City. Trump said, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, 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 three berries, probably do it again. Get ready. That's all I'm telling you. Very soon. Get ready. So, Sean, is Trump going to run and is what's that going to do for the Republican Party? I mean, and are people really happy that he waited till after the uh, November uh, 8th to announce? Oh, I, I think so. I think part of why Democrats had a good summer uh, was because the January 6th commission was going and the news was all about Trump um, because he just sucks the oxygen out of all discussion of anything else. Um, and I was thinking for a while there, you know, we always say elections are referenda on the party in power. They aren't choices. Um, but I was thinking for a while there, wow, like, the Democrats might actually succeed in turning this into a choice election. And if Donald Trump declares before Election Day, that's what this is going to be. It's going to be a, a proxy for 2024. So, yeah, I, I think Republicans are probably collectively relieved uh, that that he hasn't uh declared his candidacy. I don't know that they're relieved that he's going to be declaring for 2024, especially if you're a a Republican who's going to win in a Biden plus 13 district this time around, uh, who would like to see something different. And if you're an American who would prefer that we not have a choice between a 78-year-old and an 82-year-old in 2024. But I think people are glad it's after the election. Carl, how do you see it? Well, I I think my own sense is that Trump has been gradually and subtly losing ground to other Republicans, most particularly Ron DeSantis, and that he doesn't want to wait uh, and be yesterday's news. And I think if he, if he does announce this month, uh, DeSantis is going to be under uh, who's on the ballot on Tuesday is going to be under pressure to, you know, make up his mind more quickly than he might've wanted to. I, I don't know. I'm not, not sure if there's another Republican out there that can beat him, beat Trump or whether DeSantis can, but I, I, I guess I, this may be conventional wisdom, but if it is, I share it. I don't think Donald 
John Trump is the Republican Party's strongest nominee in two years. Tom? I think Trump is definitely going to run. You know, it is Donald Trump, so who knows? But my just, I mean, he's basically telling everybody, and he has been for some time, that he's going to run. Uh, and he'll win the nomination. I mean, according to all the, I mean, I, I'd be shocked if he didn't, um, even though there's some, there's some Republicans who would rather not see him run and would rather see a candidate with his policies, but not his baggage and drama. There was a story out today that the DOJ is looking at, you know, maybe needing a special counsel to assign a special counsel, you know, to manage these sprawling federal investigations of Donald Trump. I mean, it's just going to be, it's going to be unbelievable. Right. I also think that, you know, Joe Biden says he, he wants to run. It's his intent to run. If there's a, if there is a red wave on November 8th, I just feel like he's going to be under enormous, enormous pressure to step down, step aside, not step down, but you know, basically declare he's not running for reelection and pass the baton uh, to someone else, even though he said, you know, I think he wants to run against Trump again. He thinks he can beat him again, et cetera, et cetera. But I just, so I think we're going to have a, and ele- I think it is going to start soon. I think it might, it might be November 14th or it might be December 1st or something, but I think, I think we'll, we'll have the shape of the 2024 election is going to take, take place very quickly after this election is over. And Sean, you know, <clears throat> there's already discussion of what a Republican House and maybe a Republican Senate, what their agenda will be. And there's some talk about all these investigations that might be launched in the House. And these would be investigations of Afghanistan withdrawal, the origins of COVID, the DOJ probes of parents at school board meetings, and of course, Hunter Biden. Other people are warning if the Republicans do that, they aren't going to focus on the things that people voted on, the economy, crime, the border. Are the Republicans in for like a a huge fight that will sort of harm them when it comes to 2024? You know, three of those four actually sound pretty reasonable to me. The the, the investigations, like they sound like things that a Congressional Oversight Committee is there for. The Hunter Biden laptop, I mean, you know, that has major potential to turn into Benghazi, right? Like a, a, a bunt that Republicans insist on spinning as a triple. I think at the end of the day, they aren't. They don't have the presidency. They're not going to have a filibuster-proof majority. Um, so they're they're whatever legislative agenda they have is mostly going to be showboating. Like they'll they'll pass bills in the House. They'll bring them up for votes in the Senate, and the Democrats will filibuster them. Strange new respect for the filibuster. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it, that that's going to be the story. Real, real quick on Biden, I was shocked and astounded to see, not that, so I don't know if you saw the clip where uh, Biden said that uh, it was the war in Iraq that was causing prices to rise. And then he said, well, no, I meant the war in Ukraine, the war, I meant the war in Iraq because that's where my son died and his son didn't die in Iraq. He died from cancer. Some people tried to save it by saying, well, but he got it from the burn pits in Iraq. I'm not here to weigh in on that. What shocked me was that the New York Times ran a story about it. Uh, and that tells me that the knives are start like to me that was a shot shot across Biden's bow. The knives are coming out on this issue and after the midterms are over, we're not going to be afraid uh to report on this stuff at least until you declare you're running again. <laughs> um so we'll see. Carl Where's Mitch McConnell in all this? Because one of the things that Trump has said is he's called for his impeachment. I don't even know how that would work, but I, there's certainly not uh, 
uh, certainly a lot of bad blood between uh, McConnell and Trump at this point. Again, is that you know a friction point that just is going to hurt the Republicans going forward? Or, well, it or doesn't help. I mean, Mc- Mitch McConnell is is unpopular among Democrats. They use him as a punching bag, and for the most recent Republican uh, president and and want to be future president to do the same thing. How, how does that help your party? It makes, you know, again, if you had a press that was nonpartisan, it would make, it would help McConnell. It would make him look more normal and less threatening and put him in the middle, but we don't have that. We just have piling on. I, I don't even know what, uh, where Trump's going with that. I don't even know what's motivating him or who he wants to be majority leader. It's, it's hard to follow him. Um, I was thinking what, uh, Sean was saying about, President Biden, uh, he followed that one up with saying he was telling a group. I, I didn't quite get the context. I, I think it was in the in the White House that why it was so important for Democrats to win this election because he said this student loan thing. You know, I only got that through Congress by one vote. People in the presence were mystified. There was no vote, of course. There was no legislation. Biden signed an executive order, but it made me wonder. Who prepared the executive order then? What did they tell the president when he was signing it? Did he think it was a bill? I mean, we're getting to the point, you know, where the Democrats want to put Donald Trump in prison. This is not, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, if, if Joe Biden ends up in a, a, a nursing home in, a, in, the, in the cognitive wing of a nursing home, that would be quite an election in 2024. <laughs> Trump would be running from federal prison. Joe Biden would be running from the nursing home. Um, so I think the two political parties probably need to, I think both of them need to, you know, there are no smoke filled rooms anymore, but there probably need to be. I just want to add one thing on Mitch McConnell. If Republicans do sweep these Senate races, he is going to have his hands full with Blake Masters mm. and J.D. Vance and Ted Budd and Herschel Walker and Don Bolduck. I mean, it is going to be, <laughs> he is going to have no fun for a couple of years. And he's not looking at a, a, a fun time if, if Republicans sweep these Senate races. Impeachment may sound like a pretty good option at that point, I guess. <laughs> well, guys, I want to thank you. Sean Trendy, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. And if you haven't already, uh, go out and vote. Um, I always say thank you for listening, but I really do mean it. Uh, the audience for this podcast is growing. I appreciate all of you for taking the time to listen, and especially to those of you who reach out to me and let me know what you think about it. And of course, thanks to all the folks at Real Clear Politics who uh, helped make this podcast possible. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. <laughs>